Michelle Serson, thank you for joining me. Michelle is a, a construction industry adjudicator, a lawyer, and a director of Tricks of Your Trade, and also a bit of a mentor for me when it comes to podcasting. I have to say thank you for getting me into this and kicking me off. I couldn't have done it without your, your input, so thank you very much for that. But how about you give us a bit of an intro of yourself? Hey, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on here. Um, yeah, so like you say, I am a construction lawyer. I'm a construction adjudicator in Queensland. Uh, I specialise in helping commercial subcontractors who work for commercial builders. And uh, our typical client looks like a subby who's given a very big, scary contract to sign from a builder and can pretty much never dictate uh, or give the builder their own terms. So, um, so that's me. I used to be a builder CA. Used to, I've got actual site experience, and that's how um, how I got into this because people just kept ringing me for help, and I thought, well, I better go out and sort myself out and learn all of the things, and that's how we met. That is that is how we met, and it, that was a little while ago now. Um, and um, look, just just to go a bit deeper on that, so Tricks of Your Trade is your business and you've had that for some time now and, and that, uh, you'll explain it better than me, but for me that is kind of a subby's right-hand connection when it comes to contrast, contract negotiation um, and also some training materials and, and courses you can do on negotiations and things like that. Um, How's it all running for you? That's, uh, I guess, especially now with, um, from my side, more industrial relations strength being given to delegates and unions. Negotiation is going to be a big thing, but also negotiation when you're talking to principal contractors and builders. So uh, how, how is that all going for your, um, your clients in that sector? It's massive. So uh, it's interesting because for a long time, subbies just went along with the status quo. No one thought they were allowed to negotiate. And it's a good combination of knowing what you need to get changed in your contract for a practical reason or for an operational reason. And then also um, knowing how to give them logic-based assurances so that they're not, the builder's not, if you go in and try and lawyer your builder, you're just gonna end up in a Barney and they're not gonna trust you and it's gonna turn, everyone will be cranky from day one. But when you can explain to them in a really common sense, logical way, why one, you will perform because it's in your interest to perform and they don't have to worry about having that clause in their contract anyway. Uh, but secondly, why it's actually either impossible, impractical or silly or an absurdity. Um, so I'll give you an example. We see in every single subcontract that the subby has to protect their work from trades that follow. So, uh, Yesterday, I was helping a piling subcontractor negotiate a contract. And I said to him, when you explain this to the builder, one thing you can say is, listen, we're happy to do whatever you need us to do, but we're really struggling to understand how we would protect our work. We literally bury it. Like, what do you have in mind? And when you say it like that, if you've got somebody on the other side of the table, they'll just be like, oh, well, actually, you're right. Like, how can you argue with that? But if you went down the route of saying, look, no, I shouldn't have to protect my work, um, you know, and tried to lawyer that context, that's not going to get you anywhere. So what I try and do, so Tricks of Your Trade, just to answer your first question, Tricks of Your Trade is a commercial management consultancy firm. We help subbies with negotiating contracts, um, reviewing contracts from an operational perspective and security of payment compliance for their payment claims. Uh, we don't 
we're not a law firm. Tricks of Your Trade is not a law firm. So the great thing about it is subbies can come to us and we won't talk in legalese. We also don't have to take such extreme um, measures in our advice by saying, oh, you can't sign this contract, it's too risky, because our insurer would require us to give you that caution. Uh, we don't do legal reviews of contracts. What we'll do is actually ask you probably 50 questions about what the actual job's going to entail and then work out what you need to get changed and what's not going to be relevant for you. And the great thing about it is you don't have to be a lawyer to cross something out. If you can read it and tell that it doesn't apply to you, all you've got to do is cross it out. And then if you've got the tools in your negotiation tool belt to be able to explain to the builder why in a good bloke way, that's cool. You don't have to worry about us crossing that out because we're going to do A, B and C. You've already got this sorted out for that. That's not even going to apply to us. And we'll make sure we give you this so that you're happy. And we yeah. have pretty good success with it. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've referred you to a few of my clients and and people that I know over the years and and every piece of feedback I get is extremely positive with respect to what you do and the, the support you give. Much needed in, um, in your world. And there are similarities, you know, um, you know, your clients ask you questions about union stuff and, and you know, contract clauses that can protect them from union activity. Uh, sometimes I know that. And certainly my clients also ask me because I work with them in contracts. They ask me questions about, um, you know, construction sector and, and other other items, but commercial contracts and business contracts and that sort of thing. They ask me questions about those and I shoot them your way when it's relevant. Um, one thing that I find in my world which I'd like to see if it's the same in your world, is that contract templates are being used m most often. It's just a, a template that's usually not really fit for purpose for everybody that's going to go to. And that does um, leave gaps and holes that people can fall into um, with complying with their own contract terms and obligations and that sort of thing. It's a, a, I'm feeling like it's a similar scenario with, uh, with your clients when they're trying to negotiate with big builders. Yeah, it's 100% yeah. what's happening. So uh, if you're a builder and you want a really cost-effective subcontract, a lot of lawyers will recommend a design and construct sub subcontract because it'll cover all your types of trades. Problem with that is when you've got a fencer who's doing a job on a linear metre rate or a schedule of rates or a waterproofer on a square metre rate or a blocky on a schedule of rates, they're not designing anything. And... If they sign up to those contracts, their insurers can deny cover if they sign up to terms that limit the subcontractor's ability to be released from some kind of liability or if it tips them into things that are in excess of what their insurer can recover from somebody else who's liable as well. So it's, it's actually a bit of Russian roulette. But like I said, when you give them logic-based assurances, in a lot of instances, we can go back to a builder with an email from our broker that says, we're not happy with you signing a DNC contract. You're literally a labour only subby. Mm. <laughs> You're not even supplying anything. You need to get a different contract. And nine times out of 10, we can get them to downgrade it to a construct only. The difficulty and it's the unfortunate thing is that builders don't have huge budgets to go and pay for whiz bang contracts. They don't want to have to train their staff on how to use and administer multiple different types of contracts. So when you go and ask them for something outside of what they've already got, they don't know what to do. And if you go to a law firm and ask them to draft you a contract or get you a contract, it's going to take you a couple of weeks at least. And that's if somebody's sitting on a stool waiting to serve you. 
So yeah, um, and five grand and five grand later for a template. Oh, at least five thousand dollars. It's mm. um, it's really difficult even for the lawyers to be able to serve the clients with what's on the market because if you look at the standard Australian standard contract. 20 to 30 years old, doesn't cover security of payment law, doesn't cover the PPS. None of the current legislation even exists in there. And hmm. so the special conditions required just to bring it up to today's laws, that's, this is a lawyer's picnic. This is what's going on out there is no one wants the Australian standard updated because the lawyer's making so much money redrafting it every single time it's used. Yeah, and it's it's the same thing in employment relations and workplaces and in all the industrial relations amendments that are happening as well. What, you know what what I find is when I walk into you know, someone who hasn't worked with me before, usually the first phone call is because they've got an issue. There's a claim on the doorstep, or there's about to be a claim, or something like that. Right, and if it's um, usually what uh, well not usually, but often what happens is uh, they're trying to use a contract template which isn't, again, fit for purpose. They've got these templates or they've obtained from somewhere, they've downloaded them, whatever it is. Even the Fair Work Ombudsman will give you things you can download and they're shit. Don't use them either. But, um, you know, they, they'll change the word full-time on a contract to independent contractor and they think they've done the trick and now you're a contractor. Now, that's, you know, in the these days, it's far um, easier to use independent contractors. But if your contract terms reflect a full-time employment relationship they're a full-time employee whether it says independent contractor or not so you 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 do need to understand what it is you're issuing and and use them and and you're right now i've had clients come to me saying i can't afford to go to a lawyer and, I, and they send me what the lawyers have sent back to them and their quotes you know for a, an employment yeah. um, uh, contract template um which again, and when I look at the templates that have been provided, are not still not fit for purpose. They're paying five thousand dollars a document, you know, a document. Now these, these, you might need three or four different suites of uh, a whole suite of three or four different contracts in your workplace. You might need that. So there's twenty grand, and they're still not fit for purpose. So um, services like yours and ours are very much, you know, needed and and um, should be taken up. So. Um, can, can I ask you, dispute-wise, unions are in the news all over the place. Um, Tony Burke, the IR minister, is um, looking at giving more powers to delegates on site towards the end of this year. They've already given far more powers to unions and what they can do, multi-employer bargaining, all that sort of stuff is happening. Um, disputes are coming to the forefront. I'm dealing with more union activity than I, than I have in, in many years right now, the last six months anyway. Um, now, as an adjudicator, are you, are you just looking after contractual disputes or do you, do you get exposed to, to industrial relations disputes as well on site? Or? So as an adjudicator in Queensland, we're, we're under the security of payment laws. So basically everything has to catalyse in a payment claim. There can be disputes about unions and IR compliance and where a subcontractor might have an issue with the union and the builder feels that they can short pay them for that. That can mm -hmm. catalyse in a payment claim because they'll get back charged or they'll not get paid and then the subby will need to take an adjudication to try and compel payment. So um, in terms of whether or not we would get involved in the nitty-gritty of whether somebody complied with IR or anything like that, it wouldn't get that far in a security of payment adjudication because 
an adjudicator has a very strict framework in which they can say whether somebody's entitled to be paid. And so if the builder doesn't have a right to set off or deduct money under the contract for the particular issue, uh, they're not allowed to, but they're also not allowed to have what's called a damages claim in adjudication in Australia. So normally if the subby causes or costs a builder money, it would be a damages claim because they're going to go, here's my account of costs and I'm probably going to lose this much in delay costs and here's how much my foreman is per, per day and all of those things. That's not something that an adjudicator is allowed to sort of collate and calculate and decide to deduct from a subby. Um, yeah. But bear in mind security of payment decisions, and this is Australia-wide with adjudicators, uh, security of payment decisions are on the interim decision. So it's up to the parties. They can sue each other after the fact. Mm. Whether or not they try to is another thing because nine times out of ten where an adjudication happens, unless there is a really big proper worth it dispute to take to court, the builder's just trying it on to try and short yeah. pay in the meantime. It's just not worth it, is it? And um, I know, I know for a fact, you know that unions will use, um, you know, pressures like um, holding up work, slowing work down, yeah. um, stopping work, and that causes delays. And then, you know, then the question that I get asked a lot from from subbies is, can I charge a variation for the fact that the the builder who controls the site didn't control the union and they stopped me unlawfully? Um, you know, and that that's a that's happening every day in this country, all over the place. You know, and, and I think I'll touch on some of the things that unions are doing now, because especially for your um, clients, uh, they'll be experiencing this stuff um, more frequently than most. Um, but th- that that is that is a trick and a tool that um, industrial relations, uh, you know, agitators will use. And, and let's let's talk about our, one of our mutual clients, if you don't mind, down in Victoria. I won't name them, uh, but uh, I, I do sing his praises because surprising to me, for the very first time, someone I've been working with in Victoria has decided to actually hold their ground against the CFMEU. Um, it, it's a different world down there. It really is. But um, in, in that situation, this is a, this is a, a person who was awarded work from a larger a large builder and, uh, you know, principal contractor and uh, totally lawfully engaged his own subcontractors and um, there was no sham contracting, none of the kind, nothing at all going on, but the CFMEU can simply allege that you're doing it and then you're straight into a dispute Um, and that slows you down. Now, what the CFMEU did in that situation was they pulled this guy's subcontractors into the shed and said, you're not allowed to work until until you show me who's uh, who's paying the, the, the fees, the dues, who's paying the entitlement and, and, and show me all this information. And that's not, that's not, legal to do that there's a there's a freedom of association law that you can't breach in this country and you know unions are trying it but they're being taken to court by the ombudsman and, and others uh, and we'll, we'll touch on that um but that's a classic example where he, that project was slowed down his work was slowed down all he wanted to do was finish the project and he's actually been burned he's, he's going to go away from those types of projects now which is unfortunate um and that is going to happen in the industry uh but that's a classic example um in in, in a situation like that I don't know what what extent of support you gave in that situation, but I would assume that you, that he was on the phone to you as well and, and trying to deal with the the, the principal yes. and getting yeah. And let me um, so in terms of the triage of that situation, there's two ways that um, so two sides of that coin. One is the subbies who are delayed because the union picked on him, 
and the site got shut down, stopped. So stop work, everyone, we're going to go and pick on this guy in the shed and have a look at his documents. So the subbies who were delayed, unless they had protections in their contract or unless they'd marked up their contract, not only would they not be entitled to claim delay costs, if they were not entitled to an extension of time for that problem, they could have been up for liquidated damages for every day that they didn't finish their work on time. So uh, that particular builder, thank goodness, took a bit of a good commercial relationship approach because the subby who was picked on was working on more than one jo job for them. Yeah. That in itself has issues. Now, before I move on, I just want to give you guys the hack on how to actually mark up your contract like that with these delays. So if you're the subby that's being delayed, you need to have in your causes of delay, so they usually call them qualifying causes of delay in your contract or an excusable delay, or sometimes in the time clause, they'll say what you're allowed to have an extension of time for. You need to write in there union stoppages um, and you can say also that your any delays by third party regulating authorities, organisations with any kind of authority or jurisdiction over the site. And uh, in terms of also anyone who's got authority because of an agreement or an instrument. So there's ways you can write that in there and it can just be in your handwriting. It does not have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be lawyered. Just write it in there. Um, the second thing that you need to do is make sure that you're entitled to be paid a variation for an increase in the wages and entitlements that you might have to pay if that site was turned into a union site or somebody imposes obligations on you because of that issue. So what we do in that instance is two things. <clears throat> There'll be an industrial relations clause that will say that you have to have allowed for wages and entitlements based on any agreement, instrument, award, law, uh, regulation. And then they'll also usually put in brackets or they'll say in their project or site agreement or otherwise. So you need to be crossing that out, anything that talks about an, an agreement or an EBA and just strip that clause back to anything that's just the law, like just the award wage. And the builder will usually push back on that. So I have another little backup plan where when you go to the definitions, they'll usually define a law, a law or a legislative requirement. And if you can get in there, I was reading one last night. I'm going to read it to you so that I can get the wording right. So I was reading yep. one last night that said uh, a law or legislative requirement includes, and it says acts, ordinances, regulations, bylaws, orders, awards, and proclamations of the Commonwealth, blah, blah, blah. But this is the bit that I really liked. They had in here, and requirements of organisations having jurisdiction applicable to the subcontract works. So anyone's got, anyone who's got the ability to tell you what you have to do for your subcontract works, that is considered to be a law in the definition. Now, most of your subcontracts will say that if there's a change in the law, you're entitled to a variation. So mm -hmm. that's your backdoor way. So what I like to do is cross it out in the industrial relations section so that the builder's looking at that and going, no, no, no. Um, but then you've got that backup if they let you get that one through for the, the definition of the law. So when we negotiate these particular changes with builders, some of the things we've had come back are um, that's the subby's risk. That's the contractor's risk. And it's just all this push down, pass down mentality. And hmm. it's up to you guys to go, hey, guys, we don't have the same business profile as you. 
we have wages on the payroll. You guys are builders. You've got five people in the office wearing white collar and you've got a foreman on every site and maybe an apprentice. Like you don't have the same risk profile we have. We can't carry this kind of risk. We're talking about 40 to 60 workers whose wages could go up 30% tomorrow. How are we supposed to do that? And yeah. let them see from your perspective, these people have not worked a single day in business in their life unless you're speaking to Mr. Builder Director. It's up to you to actually explain to them what in a practical sense that would mean for you and that if you were to actually budget that, it says in the contract you have to have allowed for it. If you allow for it, your price is going to be so uncompetitive or everyone allows for it. Now what's the cost of building? So that's where I come from with the subbies who are delayed and need additional money under their contracts. In terms of our client that we had, uh, he got short, well, basically they turned the tap off on all of his payments. So he had multiple jobs and it was like, whoa, let's just turn the tap off on every single job. Couple of issues there. Clauses in your contract that say that they can cross contract set off. So you've got a clause in your contract and the Australian standard has one, I think it's clause 47.2 or something like that, or maybe it's 42.7 that says other money's due. So it's a cross-contract set-off clause. It allows the builder to say, it doesn't matter which job you do something naughty on, I'm allowed to hold your payments on any job I want and I can take retentions from any job I want. So if you're doing repeat ongoing work for the same builders, which is a good idea because you need to know who you're in bed with, um, but if you have these clauses, it's like having termites in your contract because they can literally just go any which way they want to go in terms of turning off your payments. So what we did with that particular subcontractor uh, was we gave a notice of dispute and that guy in particular had, um, had enough labour to be able to finish the job, had in the EVA uh, or the agreement that was being disputed with the unions, it actually said that he was allowed to keep working while it was sorted out. So That's he right, pointed yeah. to that clause and said, no, I'm allowed to stay on site while this is going on. I haven't done anything wrong. This is being disputed the right way. I'm participating the way I'm supposed to. And the builder, though, in that instance, was trying to say that he was in breach for not giving them prior notice to subcontract a portion of the work. And when subbies are out there doing work, you guys are thinking, I've got ABN workers who we might have proper contracts with, but in the builder's mind, anyone you contract who's not your employee on the payroll is a subbie. And so you do have a mechanism in your contracts where you do have to get prior approval for who you're going to subcontract. And that's why from an admin perspective, we can hit this on the head. That entire dispute or the, the ability for the builder to be punishing the subbie in that instance had he at the start of the job, when everyone's mates, when the contract is signed, just given them a list of who his subbies were and said, this is my sheet up, this is my setter, or, you know, even with the form workers, we use strippers and we use um, mm. sealers and things like that. So this is the thing is if you do your admin, and I think this is why you and I both went into business because we were seeing how much people were paying with lawyers and the lawyers were so far removed from the practical needs of subbies on site that we knew that if there was just one email sent or like there was just one notice given or if you just actually put that in writing, even in a text message, we could have got over the line with that. Uh, yeah, that's but right. Hmm. it would cost them more than 10x when they're bleeding from the neck and they come to you when it's a real issue. So 
Yeah, it's a good it's a good example of that one because I did forget that element of of the the issue that he was dealing with, and um, you know, there's the contracts will tell you well the, the contracts will say you must give notice and, and and this sort of thing. Now, if you don't comply with that, then you didn't comply with it. So it's very hard to stand on a platform and defend you if you didn't do that. However, um, the, the the way I I see that is that for a contractor to also enter the site they have to be inducted you have to give notice for inductions and that sort of thing so that they, they did actually know that there were contractors coming on site who, who they were engaged by what work they were doing they knew all that sort of stuff um and so even that is a flaw in the builder's argument um to, to try and use it as, as, a, as a defense point so using logic is is always the best thing to do when you have a dispute like that i think um which, based assurances yeah. logic-based arguments and that's what they say is a really big court cases are always won on the factual details. It's the lawyer who is intimately across the details who can say, well, that doesn't make sense. What were the damages for that? You know, show yeah. me the damages. And in that instance, there are a lot of subbies who think, well, I don't have to administer my contract because I've they've never asked me for this and it's always been fine. And nine times out of 10, I would say to someone, well, what are the damages if you don't tell someone who you're going to use as a subby? In that instance, the builder could demonstrate damages because mm -hmm. so, and I agree with you, the builder was informed, at least the site was informed, but the clause in the contract required the notice to be given prior to commencement and mm -hmm. it's um, a contractual mechanism that's in there to give rise to the ability for there to be a breach. So um, yeah. I I. I totally agree in terms of what you're saying from a factual basis. They knew, so, but they didn't comply with the contract. Yeah. But while we're on this, I might, um, we'll talk about, uh, I wanted to talk about, especially with you, because obviously um, a lot of your clients and, and potential clients would be listening to this at some point, I would assume. And um, whenever I speak to you about your clients or you, I get a call from someone, I said, oh, Michelle told me to give you a, a phone call. It's usually about union conduct and, and what, what's happening and um, and that sort of thing. Probably worthwhile. I, I jotted down some notes last night just for my, for my own experience in the last six months, what, what I've personally um, had, a, had a, been touched by, I had a hand in working on, um, and the list, as I got through it, the, the list is pretty frightening. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I might just run through a couple of things and then get your thoughts on this because it'll be worthwhile uh, for at least your clients and especially mine. Um, but if, if I go back to, so back in February in 2023 this year, New South Wales, CFMEU, um, I'm hearing from clients that they're they're pushing hard to do a no uh, a, a no ticket no start sort of approach to to construction sites. They've got people standing in, at the gate um, checking tickets. Essentially, tickets means um, a couple of things. Um, it means that you know they're checking your qualifications and and so on. Their tickets, but they're sneakily saying, "Show me your union membership. Show me that you're paying union fees and dues." You couldn't if you couldn't produce that, you don't get access to the site. Um, now that is um, that were that were accusations that were flying around, and uh, you know, in, in February, on the back of the December um, changes to uh, the Fair Work Act, the 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 federal government announced, um, which was giving unions more power. That's when this behaviour started to started to come about, just after uh, you know, a couple of months in. Um, 
around the same time in February, um, the uh, Marine Services Union, I think it was, they were taken to court in February by the Fair Work Ombudsman, um, as well as as well as the uh, labour hire business called Offshore Marine Services. Um, what was happening there was the the union was only allowing uh, union ticket holders and, and fee fee paying union members access to offshore uh, work via this labour hire business. And when um, that practice was so embedded that non-members were going to the union to try and to try and sign up to get a job with this labour hire business, they were being turned away until all the current members were already employed. Um, so that 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 was really embedded. Now, what happened there? Um, both both the employer and the union uh, were being were going to be uh, prosecuted. And I think they may have. I don't don't quote me on that. But you're talking about thirty three forty thousand dollar fine each for, for doing that. Um, I didn't hear any more of that. But but I, at the beginnings of that case, I, I had some questions asked about me. So that was in February as well. I go to May, if I fast forward to May and June, my personal experiences with some some clients having issues, again, allegations, accusations of, uh, in Victoria, um, bikies being used by the CFMEU to, to muscle in on business owners and get them to pay up to $100,000 for protection to have a good EBA and to be left alone. Um, again, that's a that's an allegation, but this person had said to me that they knew someone who paid the money for the security only to have bikey members turn up again and not not leave him alone at all but tell him who he who he has to hire and put on jobs and that sort of thing and start to control his business um st- sticking in may june um with this client that we just spoke about you know he defends an attack by the cfmeu successfully um but not before he loses his contractors due, due to the coercion and harassment that they they experienced on site they walked off and didn't want to didn't want to work there anymore um, CFMEU in July, just this month, the federal court fined Jason Roach, who was a CFMEU member and a um, a safety advisor on a, on a work site, employed um, on the work site as a safety advisor. He got a sixty thousand dollar fine because what he was doing as a safety advisor. This is what mining businesses, uh, sorry, uh, union delegates do. If you're a safety advisor on a site, um, the union wants you on board. You, you, you you're going to be a a a union member in that role. In fact, in mining, my time in coal mining, I believe that it was so far embedded there that it was negotiated and into the Coal Mining Act that um, the uh, I could be wrong, but the open cut examiner and the and the ERZ controller, those two positions for the open cut mines and underground mines, they have the power to shut the site down due to a safety concern. And I think it was uh, worked into the act that they have to be union members um, so they can shut down sites. Similarly, in the construction sector, if you're a safety advisor, you know every single person that walks on the site because you have to induct them. And what this guy was doing was checking their tickets, their qualifications, and saying, "Show me your member, your, your membership to the CFMEU." If you if you didn't have it, he specifically told you, "You can't work here." Um, so that's illegal. You can't do that, right? So he got a sixty thousand dollar fine for that. Um, sticking in this month again, the electrical trade union, and you've, you'd have some electrical contractors who are um, your clients. So this would be relevant to them. 16 electrical businesses to date, as far as I know, have signed up to this EBA but with the ETU, this Enterprise Bargaining Agreement. A couple of features of this agreement, it, it, it takes uh, – if you have to 
do disciplinary action towards a delegate who's one of your employees uh, for misconduct or for whatever, you got you have to answer a 10-day consultation period with the union before you can roll out any disciplinary action for anything this person's done. Um, and then you also have to pay a higher rate of pay to the union delegate. So the employer has to pay money at additional hourly rate to the delegate. My question for that is what what does that buy the, the employer, right? The, the employer pays for employees and they then uh, form a contract. Under that contract, the employee has the employer's best interest in mind for every single hour they're employed under that contract, um, provided nothing's unlawful, obviously, and unsafe. Um, so my question for that is what, what's the union delegate going to do for the employer then? Because that's that's just a bullshit clause, um, but it's real. Um and well, one everybody's other, one gonna wanna everybody's gonna wanna have that role. And then it so I can see where they're doing that. But what comes to mind, two things come to mind. One is if you create a club where only people who are in the club can go on a job site and that person is vetted through the safety delegate, is there a higher standard of care implied? or attached to that particular job site, and I mean we're days away from somebody falling off scaffold at Cross River Rail, and the unions were straight onto the news going, we've been telling them, we've been telling them. And I'm thinking, well, you also called someone a pumpkin eater and got in trouble from the court for that. So mm. there's a bit of a problem here between the uh, intentions of the union is it actually about safety here or are we just trying to coerce people? And then if it is actually about restricting and constraining another business's right to do business or to have competitive pricing with their subcontractors, because this is a business interaction between a builder and a subcontractor, people getting on site and there's an employee who's the gatekeeper who has to be a union delegate. Um, that's that's anti-competitive behaviour under Australian consumer law and the irony is that it's called cartel conduct. HR, well, it, 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 <laughs> it is. It is. It's a great point you raised too, because I've I've been saying this. Um, it just has unsettled me for years with with union conduct, and especially now with legislated single interest bargaining. Um, they, they've they've it's 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 legalized price fixing. Um, you know that, that, that's that's what it is, and you've got so, so, know, so let's. If you think about who has to be the one to fix this problem. There's a common theme here between my client and your client, our ideal clients, is that you've got to vote with your feet, right? And it's going to take an epiphany from the people on the ground to go, well, did the unions actually make that site safer? Mm, not sure that they did. Um, now, when there's not as much work going around, and I'm, at the moment there's plenty of work, and particularly with the commercial jobs, but when that changes and the competition constrains, and it's going to happen because the tier ones will get the main contracts with the government and then they'll subcontract entire projects to a tier two builder so that they can take the volume and not have to manage it. But the subbies are going to have to vote with their feet and the same thing happens with contract terms. The only way to do it is to band together. And the really worrying thing is that's why they went to the union in the first place. They went to the union because they thought that that's where they went to get protected so that they could have what they're entitled to get paid and be looked after and have somebody advocate for them. But that's not what's happening from my view. 
Uh, in fact, it's actually making things more difficult. And when you are a subby on the payroll for another subby, so you're an ABN worker or you're a worker for a subcontracting company, eventually you're going to want to get your own ABN and be your own subcontracting business. So you go through the evolution of your career and you'll stay in the industry and maybe you might just want to stay on the tools forever, but there's going to be at least 20% of them who decide I can have my own gig and then this is going to be your problem too. So if while you're a worker, you are condoning and supporting this kind of conduct, you need to look at the whole picture. If there's a reason you feel like you're not being entitled to be paid something, call Tim and Tim can tell you whether you should be paid or not. And you can also look into the fair work. Like there are actually regimes out there that are independent, objective mm. parties who don't have a vested interest in membership payments and other payments because the question begs, if I'm an employee of a building company and I'm a safety delegate, how happy is my boss going to be with me if I'm doing this? Like you're not actually, who are you working for? Like who's the boss really? Because if they're vetting people for union membership as they're bringing them on site and that was not a directive from their boss that they actually are paid by, they've got to be getting paid by the union. Yeah, you would think. that's right. That's right. That's right. And, you know, the, the, the problem that unions have um, and it's not uh, it's not hidden, you know, you, you, all you have to do is pay attention to, to, to the, the wars that they're willing to have with, with uh, people. They've been so weak for so long, the union movement, they right now, including the public sector, which is where they're probably strongest, um, they they cover about twelve percent of the total working population. Um, they're busy in a war to get control back of workplaces, right? They're not interested in supporting individuals and and that sort of thing. Now, that that's a very generalised statement. I know, I do have union delegates that um, contact me with respect to my clients who are advocating for individuals and that sort of thing. That still does happen, yes. The union movement, however, is not interested in that. They need control back. You listen to Sally McManus, who's the secretary of the uh, ACTU, who's you know the, the uh, essentially the council of all the trade unions, and her statement this week, her statement was they want no, that they want no employer to have the ability to offer a casual employment arrangement. They want zero. Right, they want zero of that. Um, the same same job, same pay legislation about labour hire and EBAs, about having to drive up the cost of labour hire to match EBAs. Uh, that all that does is get you to stop using labour hire and have permanent employees. Um, the next step is gig workers and contractors. They've lost contract the contractor fight with the higher court ruling recently, but this test, this um. This same job, same pay legislation, I believe, is actually a test. It's a hidden test to see how they can get uh, people who are otherwise specifically excluded from coverage of enterprise agreements uh, under law, how to get, how to get them covered. Um, and they're succeeding. They, they're going to succeed with this piece of legislation. The next thing is they're going to drag the contractors into this, so they're going to price fix contractors as well. Yeah. Um, yeah, people don't want to be full-time employees. It's been legislated for years now that employers must offer permanent employment to casuals who are regular and systematic. The uptake of that offer is is minuscule. It's almost zero. Um, that, that's been in law already for years. You can you apply the same logic to contractors. 
because it's far more beneficial for them. They have more control. They can make more money. They can make their own decisions. They can pick and choose the jobs they want to work on. That is freedom and flexibility and that drives productivity and it drives all kinds of positive things. So the union's problem right now, the whole movement, is that they've lost control of workplaces and that's all they that's, and that's all they can grab onto. So everything right now is about more and more control while they have a Labor government in power because they paid millions of dollars to this government to help them get elected. They, they sent firefighters and nurses and teachers to the voting polls and, and guilted people into voting for Labor. They did all that um, and good on them. That, that's, that's, that's who your party is. Of course, you're going to leverage those people. But um, now they have to pay back these unions and that's what this is all about. Um, so while this Labor government is still in power, the next, the first four years of, of their power is going to be purely the ACTU driving for control. Um, maybe if they get a second term, third term, we might start seeing some individual um, focus and support for, for genuine people. But right now, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing for change with the view that the top tier operators in the country can afford it and can they can afford to do it and that sort of stuff. But what about the two and a half million small businesses that can't? Because they're, they're the ones that have to deal with it. You know, these top top tier guys, they've got a they've got a HR team of 120 people, they've got a legal team of 20 people. That that, that that doesn't bother them at all. In fact, it helps them because it pushes out the smaller operators and they take up more market share. It's more profitable for them. But the two and a half million small businesses that employ 80% of the country who, who pay the taxes, um, they suffer tremendously. So there's my rant, Michelle. How do you like that? <laughs> well, you wouldn't believe my um, – so my upbringing, my mum was a nurse. She was always a member of the union because they cover them for insurance. Um, my stepdad worked in forestry. He was a union delegate, never got a single bit of help like the CFMEU might as well just be the CMEU, or if that's mm. the right acronym. Uh, and we've got teachers in our family who through COVID had to babysit kids and put themselves in the front line to be exposed to illness. And I just saw nothing. I just saw nothing for any of those people. I've mm. got a brother who's a police officer. Um, like it just... The reason this is happening, the CFMEU, is because they try to pick on the thing that can affect the economy so they have the political leverage to be able to get what they want. But yeah. I'm so keen to know, is there any same job, same pay stuff happening for nurses out there? Yeah, look, it's, it, they're, they're largely ignored. They're largely ignored. Um, you know, yeah. I... I, I I, I want to make one thing clear here too, by the way, while I've got a chance to do this, is that I'm not anti-union. In fact, I believe police officers, teachers, nurses, government employees, they deserve to have a union represent them because there's such large volumes and the government is shifty. They are absolutely shifty. Um, they're not They're not governed by, by a customer market. You know, they, they have a vote once every four years, but what does that get you? you know, that, that's, all, that's all manipulated anyway. Um, but the private sector... Uh, who are governed by who will spend money with your company. People, like you said before, they vote with their feet. They won't give you their money if they don't trust and believe in your in your brand and that's a big pressure for the private sector to, to do the right thing um, by people. Um, the government doesn't have that. and these so I'm, uh, Unions belong where they belong. Uh, I'm, I'm not against unions at all. Um, but look, I'll go back to, to a, a time where I supported, um, I've supported some employees in the past 
Um, and uh, back when I was specifically around mining and, and oil and gas and in that sector, I'd have union members who work for, I won't say the names of the companies, but they work for large, large operators in the mining and the energy sector and oil and gas sector who were targeted and vilified and harassed by other union members. Um, and they went to their union delegate who did nothing at all to help them or sort that problem out. Um, if if there's two members versus one, they're going to support the two members because they pay more fees than you do. That That's essentially how I've, I've witnessed them manage those sort of things. So it's not um, – it, it's it's – it's a hard one to really get. It's a hard movement to get behind, you know. Especially when I when I consider the experience, the front line experience I had myself in the mining sector, where you know people's children, um, union members during protracted industrial action period, where when I was at BHP Billiton in the in the central Queensland for two years, this went on. Eventually, people got sick of striking. They wanted to go to work, so they walked through the picket lines and went to work. Now, the union delegates took down those names and those people's children were bullied at school by the union members' children. They had the word scab burned into their front yards. They had property damage. They had abuse for years, you know, and it got to the point where um, the union essentially broke. Back then they sent Bill Shorten. I think Bill Shorten was the head of the ACTU back then. And they sent him up to central Queensland to try and negotiate the the, the deal. Even he failed and he was kicked off site. But the, um, you know, but... That conduct is it, – it, there's nothing worse. It, you know, th- this is what drives me and, and my my personal experience with unions um, today, you know, is that, you know, you, you're I not – I saw it too. I lived in Moranbar for four years. I saw the same thing. I saw exactly what you're talking about. And But you know the difference between the nursing, teaching, police sector is that they're all employed by Queensland government, so there's one employer – and then if you look at what's going on with CFMEU, they're private employers. So if the government is supporting the CFMEU, of course they're not going to work as hard for members of unions who are employed by the government that are supporting them. And get, let me give you the really fast story of what happened to, with my mum. And this was really hard for me to watch happen because I was a law student, but I don't do personal injury, so no idea. But when I was 15, mum worked for Queensland Health from when she was 16 years old. She was an enrolled nurse and she worked until she was medically retired when she was turning 60, two weeks before her retirement, she was planning to retire. Um, So what happened was when I was about 15, she had a back injury at work because they didn't have the proper hoists and things like that. And those things didn't come in. They had to just lift people for so long. Um, Mum hurt her back really badly. And then... Years later, when she was about to retire, so I think I was about 24 years old, so this must have been about 15 years later, mum has is helping somebody, another person, lift somebody in the hospital and the guy panicked, grabbed hold of her and pulled her to the ground. She in, exactly, to her mind, followed procedure, but in the procedure it said that you're supposed to drop the person. And mum didn't have time because he grabbed hold of her and pulled her to the ground. She busted her knee and hurt her back so badly She was literally out in bed for four months, had to be rehabilitated. Queensland Health said, no, you're not entitled to an injury claim because you've got a prior injury from Queensland Health. And then they medically retired her with a $0 payout. Show Mm. me that happen in construction. You see what I mean? Mum went to the union and they sent her to a no-win, no-fee lawyer who gave her some shit advice and said, Mm. 
you know, this is going to cost you more. You'll have to, and they they did the whole, you have to pay back every cent you got with work cover. I'm like, no, mum, that's not how it works. You get a settlement at the end. And mum's going, oh, I can't deal with the stress. But she yeah. ended up, she was medically retired, couldn't sit on dad's motorbike, so couldn't do any of the things they planned to do, couldn't go out in the caravan because she couldn't sit for any period of time. And it's only just now, this has been 10 years now, it's only just now that she's starting to actually improve. But this has been my witnessing of what unions do for people in other sectors. And then I'm seeing this crazy stuff going on site. And uh, when I was really young, I had an electrician boyfriend um, and he was so such a union advocate, but he had, when he was an apprentice, they got him a pay rise. So he kept paying his union fees. He did not work as an electrician from when he finished that apprenticeship. He worked for a couple of years as a sparky out in the mines and then he came back and now he's got an office job. He doesn't do anything in mm. terms of electrical. In fact, I think he runs a motorbike shop of some kind. Um, but he used to say to me, I'm just going to keep paying it because they got me that pay rise. And I was like, well, how much have you paid them back by now? He's not even in yeah. the industry and he pays them the membership fee. But I don't understand well, and, how these people get so brainwashed. Yeah, exactly. That's about to say. Not only that, I bet you the union didn't get him anything. You know, it's just a pay rise that happens happens to everybody. <laughs> yeah, non-union members get pay rises. You know, it's uh, it's – so it, it's it's such a it, it, you're right it is a brainwashing, um, and it's it's you know it's weird to witness it's really weird to witness when you've um, when you've been on, a, on the front line of a heavily unionized sector, um, and it's it's almost a show you know it, it's almost a, an entertaining show and for me it is entertaining that's what keeps me doing this because I love I love the niggle I absolutely love it but you know it's it does it doesn't help people I don't think but um anyway um, yeah. but we're, hopefully we're... the perceptions are changing because paid memberships are like dying right if you yeah. are free in a facebook group you are the product people right so but paid memberships for unions you're the product the more of you that they have the more leverage they have to try and move you around like pawns yeah they're not there for you no and and they do do that all you have to do is look at look at you don't have to go to mining and construction or or anything to see that happen turn on the news and watch brisbane cbd fill up with high-vis shirts at the back of the courthouse there um and uh yeah, and those people have been bust from all over the place. You know, the, um, I saw this when I was in, in in the Bowen Basin. You know, the site that I was at this day that I saw this has a total of six hundred employees. There were there were thousands of workers lining the streets, picketing, and like, okay, so you you've bust people like their chess pieces to to try and make a point, which was a pointless exercise anyway but you're right they they are using members uh to push their own their own agenda and, and to harass and agitate and and that's that's all it's about so you, you are if you're a member of a union you know not every not you, you are a product not not every union you know not every union is as aggressive in that sort of thing um but you know it's all about control it's all about control and the more the more you the more that they have the more control they think they will get of workplaces um, and that's what it's about right now. So don't expect too much from your union From your union, if you're a member. Let's look at the ETU, for example, and this is a good point for your electrical clients to, um, to understand. The ETU in their um, 
uh, in their agreements and things now. What they've done is now to join that union, I think it's about 750 bucks or 800 bucks, something like that, to join the union. Um, what they've done is they've said, okay, we've got this course and whatever the course is, an IR course of some kind, um, this course, if you do this course, it's going to get you an extra $7,000 in your pay a year. You get an extra allowance in the, in the enterprise agreements if you've done this course, seven grand a year. Um, if you're a member, you get it for free. If you're a non-member, you have to pay $1,500 for it. Now, that's double the price of the membership and you also don't get the seven grand, right? So what they've done there, they've manipulated the entire trade um, to go to get around the right of association laws, which is going to be challenged. This this particular practice is going to be challenged. Um, um, and uh, not only that, they're also saying you know, within within um, the union membership, delegates get paid more than non-delegates. So even within their own group, they're saying people get more because they hold they hold a higher level ticket than you do. That goes against everything the union is supposed to stand for. Um, now your electrical clients should be aware of this because they're probably going to have a 100% trade union workforce pretty soon um, if this is allowed to continue. It just makes more sense. But why, why would you not do the course and, and be a member if you're going to get seven grand and be six and a half grand better off? Um, so if it's not stopped, any electrical workers out there, contractors out there, be prepared. You're, uh, you're going to have a hell of a time for the next four years with your enterprise agreements. Um, dodgy, very dodgy. dodgy. I just all <laughs> all I can think about when you talk about things like that is the cost of construction just going through the roof, and there won't mm. be as many pro projects. And then when you want to have your own subcontracting business, what are you going to do then? Because you've got to compete with everyone else who's withstood the test of time. And the, quite a few of my clients want to have an EBA company, and they want to have a non EBA company because they're currently non EBA, and they can trust that they can pull that off. So they're like, that's all good but we think we might want to work for the tier one. So a lot of times I'll send them to you because they're thinking about that. They don't do it because they think that by doing it, they're going to get better conditions or mm. somebody advocating for them to look out for them. It's um, yeah, it's just a real concern. I think it's just moved so far away from what it should have been in the first instance. And when we say, look, you got to vote with your feet, that means you got to move as a collective, but you got to have your own brain about it and sort of, shit test these things if somebody doesn't have the same values aligned with you why are you following them and if you wouldn't condone some of the behavior that they're they're doing or if you ever want to be in business yourself just have a think about what that might involve and yeah use your use your own brain about it i i am hopeful that the younger generations where people get called woke as an insult but i think just a healthy dose of woke could actually help us out here because if we can get rid of blue-collar discrimination and this blindly following the leader club type mentality because everybody's more educated in our younger generations and just intolerant of this type of treatment. You see these apprentices who go to site and you're on the broom and that's a rite of passage to an extent but when you're not being trained and you're not being utilised and you're not living your dream, they're not going to go through the path to get where they need to go so that we have enough resources in this industry. I just think yeah. the industry has to change a little bit. What concerns me is that the fairness of contract terms is moving more 
in a positive direction because we're having changes in legislation in October around unfair contract terms that will mean it will apply to so many more businesses. Currently it applies to bugger all, um, but mm. it will apply to so many more. And then, but in the, on the other hand, this business with the unions seems to be going the opposite direction and it's, there's going to be directors' penalties for unfair contracts. So those standard templates you and I were talking about at the start of this podcast, if you go to a lawyer and you get a contract drafted and it's the nastiest contract on the street, a good chunk of it will become void and unenforceable if you ever have a Barney. And there can be penalties for directors of building companies who peddle contracts like that. So lawyers are going to have to start giving more conservative advice and saying, look, we can't, we can't recommend you have this in here because you could be subject to getting in trouble for this and you might have to pay a fine or something like that if you get prosecuted over this contract. Uh, so it's the, the law in one hand is trying to move in a better direction, but it's, it is actually lends itself to builders having less control. When you look, if you're a builder moving forward, a commercial builder, you're going to have less control because the union's going to have less control because your contract terms need to be fair. So you better start learning how to look after your subbies so that everyone actually wants to work for you and you can still build good buildings. And that's one thing I'm big on talking about everywhere where anyone will listen to me is that if you want someone to show up and be their best self at site, they need to feel respected. They need to feel safe and not have a gun to their head. And they need to admire you or at least respect you enough to want to follow you. And that's how if you behave like by giving the best example or having the best working conditions on a site, subbies will start to gravitate to you now because they've been through the bloody ringer. Mm, yeah, good point to make. Um, and it's it, it, it that also spreads to other other sectors as well. I think there's a few messages within what you just said that translate across yeah multiple sectors. I think if you've got um, you know. People, people want to have the right to choose what types of jobs they take up, uh, which gives them the flexibility to be carers, to be parents, to be students, to be whatever they want to be outside of your workplace. And the control that the ACTU, the Labor government and unions are trying to do here, that they, they, they want 100% full-time permanent work for workers. They want to take all those other options off the table. You, you, it's not me being... Um, spreading conspiracies that's that's what their statements are they want all those options off the table and they're doing everything they can there to incrementally make changes to um, to pull all those options away any employer in the country doesn't need an enterprise agreement to be impacted by that it's not just if you've got an enterprise agreement everybody will be impacted by these changes and if you don't have the ability anymore to offer attractive work options to people no one's going to come anywhere near you. Every business has interest in what's happening and needs to actually pay attention and have a voice about it um, because before you know it, you're going to be two years into this into this government stint and you're handcuffed. And that's when we're going to start seeing the Fair Work Commission cases and challenges go through and all the changes they've made to the commission and their rights and their powers and the 13 or 14 new commissioners who are union delegates, when they start making decisions, you're going to start seeing it roll out there and that's that becomes case law um, and we're not, we can't wind that back uh, yeah, unless it go, things go to the higher court and that's very rare. But, um, you know, so there's an there's a interest 
for all businesses in all industries, not just um, these ones that are largely impacted by unions, uh, to pay attention here and actually speak up and take control back of your of your business. Um, you, you need it. You need it. Yeah. Michelle, it's been about an hour. I, I, I think um, uh, we did this all the time. We did this all the time. <laughs> might be able, um, you might be able to chop this one into two podcasts or something like that. Uh, maybe, maybe. No, I, I, I like it in its entirety. I, I think it's a, it's a valuable conversation to have here. But um, uh, well, we look, never prepare, and so that's why when we're talking, we're like, "Oh, haven't you heard about this? Is that what's going on?" And you have these like <laughs> people can tell that it's actually really what we think. So I think it's good. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. For for anyone who's who's still tuned in um, at, at this late, it, you know, I I don't do any preparing or anything for these sort of things it's uh, i hit i hit record and off we go and it's first go and that's it you, you get what you get but um i often walk out of these this room not even remembering what we spoke about you know so um it's it's all off the cuff and it's it's honest honest opinion so i'm, I'm sure we're going to say some dodgy things here and there but but before before i wrap this up um i want to make sure you, you, your service um like i said to you i've referred it a number of times and every Every single time, there's nothing but praise and and how amazing you are. So I think we we you know let's send people to to you and and, and how they can best get in touch with you, and find out more about what you do. Tricksofyourtrade.com.au is that the website? Yeah, tricks of your trade, not tricks of the trade. Tricksofyourtrade.com.au. Um, yeah, head to the website. You can contact me through there. Um, I have a Tricks of Your Trade podcast. If you want to go there, you can binge some nerdy stuff about what to do with your contract admin and getting paid and some other good stuff. Um, yeah, and so if you're LinkedIn. a subcontractor that signs a builder's contract, we're here for you. Can I connect with you on LinkedIn? Sure can, yes. In fact, I Beautiful. try and do a daily post about the fuckery that happens with builder's contracts. Yep. and I, I enjoy uh, those. I read every one of them. I try to stay true to the um, unfiltered opinion and tell you what I really think. And it's, I enjoy writing them. So, yeah, I'm glad you read them. I'm glad people read them. <laughs> Good. They do, I assure you. Um, awesome. Okay. Thanks, Michelle. I appreciate that. I know you're very busy and you know, you're a, you're a adjudicator, a lawyer, a mum, a director. Uh, all those, all those wonderful things, and you're still taking some time today to spend with us. So I really right. appreciate that. I, I know it's difficult. Most, I'm a good bloke, and <laughs> any, anyone who wants to call me, you're not going to get legal jargon in your ear. I, I was born on site. I came up the ranks on site. I speak your language. So yeah, give us a call. Good. Thanks, Michelle. I appreciate that. No worry. Thank you.